All right, kids, before you go to your class, hang on and look up here. I got a story I want to tell you because this morning you're going to be talking about patience. And I won't tell you the name, but one of the teachers in one of your classes, when they, uh, when they were in kindergarten, uh, I went and picked them up from school and asked, how was school today? And she said, oh, it was awful. So why? What happened? And she said, we had P.E. today. Now, that shocked me because I only liked P.E. My best subjects were P.E. and lunch, and it's a shame they don't give you a grade for lunch. But uh, what, how could you not like P.E.? And she said, well, they made us run, and running hurts my whole body. I said, yep, I get it. I understand. Running hurts your entire body. And uh, one thing, we're talking about patience, and the old biblical word for patience is long-suffering. It's the ability to keep going even when your whole body hurts or your whole heart hurts. You can keep going. And so that's what you're going to be talking about this morning. One thing we want you to know, and parents, we want you to know, and everyone, we want you to know, that no matter how patient you are with others, you'll never be more patient with them than Christ has already been with you. And that's what fuels our parent, uh, patience. So kids, as you get up and you make your way to your class, uh, as they're going, uh, parents, a couple of kind of housekeeping things, uh, your kids should come home with a jump rope. And uh, this is one of our public services for you parents because they're going to get a jump rope and a sheet with multiple rhymes to do the Fruits of the Spirit song. And the goal, the game, is as they're jumping rope to, to memorize the fruits of the Spirit in rhythm with the jump rope. And so this is a tool not only for them to memorize the fruits of the Spirit, but to get them ready for bed, to wear them out. So this is our <laughs> gift uh, to you. So have them do their fruits of the Spirit jump rope all afternoon, and then thank me at 7. <laughs> now for the rest of us, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And we've been spending this month just marinating and looking at Ephesians and the next several months looking at the whole book because um, where we are in the life of our church, there's no better book in the Bible to describe what it is that the new society, the new people, the new community that the Lord uh, is trying to create by his gospel. And Ephesians tells us this new society, this new people, what are they to be like? What are, what are they to be marked by? What are they to do? How are they to live in the world? And we've been looking at chapter 1, and in some ways, chapter 1 is, has been remarkably overwhelming uh, for me because I've spent this month just kind of trying to get into the, the weeds of the syntax and the grammar. Chapter 1 is remarkable in ancient literature. From verse 3 to verse uh, 14 is one sentence, and then from verse 15 to verse 23, it's one sentence. And they're two of the longest sentences in ancient literature. And you try and like unravel them and say, all right, what's going on with? Where's the subject? Where's the main verb? How do all these things connect? Trying to like write a diagram and it becomes a sprawling mess. But one thing that struck me as I was looking at it, it, you know, it's almost like you're under the hood looking at how all the words and the sentences work. But on the surface, there's this remarkable simplicity and beauty. Because really, there's just two sentences, and the first sentence is deep theological adoration. It's praise, but it's praise that's just fused with deep theology of who God is, what he's done. Triune theology, Father, Son, Spirit, the way they've saved us, redeemed us. So it's praise, and then the whole second sentence is nothing but prayer. It's thankful intercession where Paul is praying for them. 
And it just got me thinking, I wonder if even though under the surface there's such complexity here, on top of the surface is this beautiful simplicity that these are the marks of a healthy soul, a soul that, has, uh, that can praise and then pray, or theological adoration and thankful intercession where you're praying for others. And it's like, in one sense, it's very simple, a soul that praises God and then prays for one another. And you know, there is something really powerful about the concept of simplicity. I mean, we live in a complex world. One of the disadvantages of the information age is information overload. I have a friend who was going to get a new TV last Christmas, and he still hasn't bought the new TV because he's got lost into the consumer reports vortex of reading about every possible television he could ever get. It's like at some point you're going to miss every single thing you want to watch. Just pick one. But he's lost in the information vortex. So we think, how can we get uh, simplicity in a complex world? Last year I read an interesting book called Insanely Simple. And the idea, the subtitle was The Obsession That Drives Apple's Success. And the, the argument was that uh, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, he kind of instituted this ruthless simplicity that's been the catalyst to motivate success. And some of the different evidences the author used to kind of prove his argument. Um, one, uh, so uh, Eli, pull up this picture. This is from 1983. You're like, well, maybe we should do it. 1983, now when Lisa came out, uh, a few of you, yeah, we remember Lisa. So 1983, now when Lisa came out, she cost $9,995, and she had a whopping total of five megabytes of hard drive memory. And Lisa didn't really sell well because she was remarkably overpriced and underperformed. Now, what's fascinating is from that perspective, nothing's really changed with Apple's products. <laughs> They're still overpriced and underperformed, but now they sell a tremendous amount of them. And the question is, why? What's the difference? Now, when Lisa first came out, the advertising department, what they did is they took out a nine-page ad in the New York Times, and the nine-page ad was nothing but like tech speak. I mean, the only people who could understand her are people who work for NASA. And then what they did, uh, so, you know, long story, uh, Jobs goes out, he comes back, and then in 1997, they kind of do the company reboot, and this was their ad. Bring up the next picture. I don't know if you remember this. It says, think different in the corner. This is one of the ad campaigns for the new advertising. One of the things that they did is ruthlessly cut all the different products, and what's so fascinating about this picture is it's a total non sequitur to computers. Like, Albert Einstein has nothing to do with Apple computers, but they changed their message, they simplified it, and just to think different. And what's interesting is that he argues in the book that it's that relentless uh, simplicity that then motivated the actual success. And uses other things like Google, so if you remember like when Netscape and Yahoo's, their original kind of web surfing pages, and then go just simplify it. And the, the question is, is there something powerful about finding simplicity? And you think about other areas of your life, like, um, you know, the economy, all of the complexities that go into a national economy, but is it possible that you can get a long way just by simply spending less than you bring in? 
Or thinking about like physical health. There's all types of difficulties or um, things to consider about genetics and hormones and different things. But you can probably go a long way to physical health by just um, consuming less than you burn or however it should work out. And uh, like my fitness pal is, pr is proven that if you take in less than you actually expend, you, you can achieve a measure of health. And so as we're looking at this, there's, in one sense, there's a remarkable simplicity to what Paul says. But just like Apple products or any computer product, like on the surface, it might look simple, but underneath the hood, there is some complexity. But what I want to do this morning is focus on three just lines in verse 15, 16, 17, three little phrases that on the surface are very simple, but if you can work them into your heart and soul, it will transform your life. And it's the phrase, faith in love for, and thankful to. A healthy soul has faith in, love for, and is thankful to. So let's think about that first thing about faith in. So let's pick up the story. Let's read his prayer, 15. We'll go all the way to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you can know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards all who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So I want to key in on a couple of those phrases. First, in verse 15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And so what Paul is, uh, he's motivated, and this next section is his prayers for the people. And what is, there's a lot we can learn here about a healthy spiritual life, what it means to pray for others. But let's look at that first key thing, because really the first two, love for others. And in one sense, this is like the, the horizontal and vertical birthmark or tattoo that marks the people of God. They have faith in Christ and then love for one another. And it's, that's the thing that marks them. So look first, faith in. And both of these things, faith and love and then thankfulness, um, are hard for us. When we live just in a world where even understanding what faith is is a challenge because we have misconceptions about what faith is. Because real faith always is um, object-oriented and evidence-based. So we often just consume, or we, we think, we um, think about faith as like, you know, blind faith is this leap into the dark. But that's not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is not a blind leap into the dark. It's a leap into the light. It is evidence-based and object-oriented. And so it's not this fuzzy wish fulfillment where we just, oh, I'm just hoping something will happen even though I don't really know. And it's also not a fiction. People often think about, you know, faith as believing in a fiction. It's like Mark Twain's fa uh, famous line. That says, uh, he says, faith is believing what you know ain't so. And uh, as usual, Twain says it so well. 
The problem is it's so wrong. That's not what faith is. Faith is not just believing something you know ain't so. Faith is um, object-oriented. It's faith in. Faith in. Notice what Paul says. Faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how he goes on to explain who he is and what he's done in this verse. He's the one in verse 20 that God has worked his immeasurable power when he rose him from the dead. He says, we are not putting our faith into some, these aren't fictitious tales. These aren't cleverly devised myths or fables. Our faith is in an actual person and it's in someone and it's evidence-based Paul's saying, we have this faith because there's a hole in in the ground in Jerusalem that had a dead body in it, and he's not there anymore. And so that's the evidence for our faith. It's it's placed in something. And I, I think it's important to remind ourselves of that reality about the Christian gospel. I mean, one of the beautiful, compelling, powerful things about the gospel, one of the reasons why I love it and I think it's worthy of of dedicating your life to understanding it and believing it and trusting it is because there's nothing else in all of the world that is so intellectually credible and so personally satisfying and socially transformative. It does all of those things. It's intellectually credible. It's a worldview that explains the way the world is, how it got this way, and how it can be fixed, unlike anything else. But then it's also emotionally satisfying where it can, it can meet you at your deepest emotional needs. And when it's unleashed, there's nothing like it that can transform the world, transform communities and societies. It's all of these things. And so our faith has a substance. It's things we believe. It's convictions. It's doctrine. It's things we hold. Like in the life of our church, one of the things we're wrestling with now, trying to put together a statement of faith. And that's not a statement of our wishes, a statement of our hopes, it's a statement, this is what we believe. It's like the song we sang, I believe in these things. I've got a couple stories this morning where I'm going to tell you about one of the ladies at uh, the first church I worked in in country town in LaGrange, Georgia. And I was a college student and part-time youth minister, and her name was uh, Miss Joanne Brown. And so Miss Brown was kind of like the matron of this you know, little southern area. And uh, she had lots of life-giving, life advice for a young 19-year-old. Like, uh, I started working at this church. I was a college senior, and, you know, they were paying me like $50 a week to be the youth minister. And when they introduced me kind of into the church at our Wednesday night uh, supper, so I don't know if you grew up in churches that had Wednesday night suppers. We had Wednesday night supper, and they introduced me to the church. The first question they, they asked, and this is the person they were about to hire, this kid they were about to hire to be their youth minister. First question, Ms. Brown raised her hand and says, Are you married? Uh, no. Do you want to meet my granddaughter? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Um, and so Miss Brown, uh, her husband Coleman, Coleman was just one of the happiest, jovial, you know, most likable people I've ever met. And one day, uh, she didn't really like the, I guess, the, what she perceived as my uh, priorities in um, maybe dating. Kissing don't last. <laughs> I, I, I don't. She goes, let me tell you something. Kissing don't last, but cooking do. <laughs> Coleman's happy because he ain't got a kiss, but he's got to eat. And I know how to cook. And so her advice was, you need to set your priorities correctly because kissing don't last. It's cooking that do. And if you can't find you a, a, a woman who can cook, then you're going to be miserable in life. 
And that struck me because the reality of our Christian experience is so often, in one sense, it's our, our feelings don't last, but it's the doctrine that do. Our feelings don't last, but it's convictions that do. It's like Elizabeth Elliot, when she watched her second husband deteriorate and slowly die to cancer, she would get up every morning and re recite the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, born of a virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And she'll tell us, this is what I believe. No matter how I feel this morning, this is true. Because the kissing don't last, but the convictions do. And this is going to hold me. And it's that, it's that faith in. That's what real faith is. It's convictions in the Lord Jesus Christ that he's uh, crucified, buried, risen, reigning, coming again, saves us, going to renew us. That's going to hold you. That's what faith in. But then it's also love for. Notice the love for. It's love for all the saints. And real love is others-oriented. It's not self consuming. It's not self-aggrandizing. It doesn't have self at the center. And this is one of the real challenges for us because we do live in a culture and in a world that's awash in false images of love. That says at the very essence, before you can love anyone else, you have to love yourself. You have to be true to yourself and love yourself. Or that love is this thing that is kind of the myth of love. You know, one of the shows we used to watch is we used to watch The Biggest Loser. And uh, my brother-in-law had this wonderful um, strategy for watching The Biggest Loser because he would say, I will watch it with you until the first tear. And as soon as the first person cries, then I'm out and I'm going to go do something productive. And uh, so the good thing is it, it would only take about four minutes before you had the first tear and he could, he could leave. And, uh, but I would stay through the whole course and watch the whole show. And it was so fascinating to me because in one sense, it's, it's a tremendous um, illustration of modern discipleship. Like what discipleship is, what conversion is. Because every single episode, you would have a conversion moment where somebody recognizes um, the sinfulness of their past and they had this person who's evangelized them with a certain gospel and then they would have this turn where they have this enlightened realization and what was so fascinating to me is every single time the conversion dynamic was I have realized that I've been too others focused it's time for me now to think about me and put me first and what was so fascinating about every episode is not only was that not true, it's not helpful. You know, you can look at people, and I can sympathize in some sense, but do you look and think, do you really think you got to this point in your life because you were too others focused or because you were too selfish consuming your, your, your desires? And then do you really think the answer is to, to ignore others and then become more internally obsessed? That won't help you. But that's what we think of when we think of love. Love is self-consuming. I consume. I take. But that's not what real love is. Notice what it says here. It's love for. It's love that's pushed out. The dynamic is God so loved the world, he stopped thinking about other people and took to himself. So God so loved the world that he gave. Love at its very dynamic, its heart is self-giving. And one of the other challenges, and I say this at all of our weddings, so if I do your wedding, you'll hear this again. But one of the things I say at our weddings, we live in a world that has such a misconception of love because the way we even talk about it, you know, we talk about you fall into it. 
Love is the thing you fall into. And you know that all of you know the reality. That's just ridiculous. Do you know what you fall into? Holes. <laughs> you fall into ditches. You don't fall into love. You have to fight into it. Love is something you sacrifice for. Love happens when you sacrifice and turn away from yourself and give. And what Paul is saying, these are the two marks. Healthy Christians have faith in Christ and love for one another. All real love is sacrificial. It gives of itself. And think about what fuels our sacrificial giving. See, Jesus gave himself wholly and completely for us on the cross. And so now in a hundred little ways, we can give ourselves partially to, to other people. I was joking with a couple people uh, here this past week, just thinking uh, in one sense, kind of how the challenge that, you know, somebody new moves in across the street and then you think, oh, I'm the pastor. I really need to go across the street and meet them. It's like, oh, I just want to sit down. And you think, but Christ stepped out of heaven and came out of heaven, incarnated himself, made himself nothing, and came to the cross to serve me. Do you think it's too much to walk across the street and welcome somebody? It's the power and dynamic of the incarnation that then fuels all of our action. And so love is self-giving that way. And then the last thing that I want you to see here is thankful too. Because these marks of a healthy, so thankful, you have faith, you have how, notice what Paul is doing. He's saying, I see these things in you. You have faith, you have um, love for one another, but I'm thankful to God for them. So a couple things I want you to see this morning just about thankfulness is thankfulness is a soil, it's a sweetener, it desires and it dreams. So Ellie, you can just pull all those up and we'll think about those. But at another church when we were in Kentucky, uh, in the little town that we were ministering into, the only real place you could go to kind of get anything was the Dollar General. And uh, one Sunday, I was at the Dollar General, and there was this interesting scene that kind of transpired in front of me. And to kind of paint the scene, there was Mama, and then Mama, and then Son. And it was kind of, I mean, Mama looked like she was my age, and then Mama looked maybe 18, 17, and then the Son was maybe four or five. And it was very obvious, because there was lots of tension, that if you've ever seen this dynamic where Mama was fighting with Mama but using the sun. And so when I came up, they were getting checked out at the Dollar General, and uh, Mama was in the midst of some grand oration, and uh, the, the little girl who was checking her out was getting right into her, her grand oration. And I came in when I hear Mama say, well, if Mama can't spoil them, who can? And then the girl at the checkout charms right in. That's right. I've always said, that's what Mama's do. If Mama can't spoil the kid, who can? And uh, <coughs> evidently the tension was Mama wanted to buy the boy like this plastic waste of money motorcycle that he saw. And uh, Mama didn't want her to you know, waste money on this plastic waste of money. And, uh, but she was going to do it anyway, because if Mama can't spoil him, who can? And they start kind of going back and forth. And but, yep, that's right. And then the, the teller, you know, the girl checking him out, was, you know, and she looks at the son, and she's holding the, you know, the object of contention. And uh, she looks at the son and says, would you like your motorcycle now? And he, he said, yes. And then Mama stopped him and said, uh-uh-uh-uh, what do you say? Now, we're, I'm from the South, and if you know from the South, just part of, uh, it's just a please and thank you culture. And one of the great cultural crimes, uh, you can have a heart filled with hatred for people, but if you don't say please and thank you, then um, you're a terrible person. <laughs> and so Mama looks at the boy and is like, what do you say? 
And I felt so sorry for this little boy because he looked up and had this panic look on his face. And it wasn't like malicious. It wasn't like he was trying to like, you know, give it to mama. Like you could have asked him who's the Surgeon General of the United States and he would have the same look like, I have no idea what to say. And then he kind of thought for a second and he said, give it to me now. And can you, I mean, you can only imagine what that did to mama. Her blood pressure was already up. And that just set her over the edge. And she busted out, Lord, have mercy. It's thank you, child. Thank you. My own grandbaby doesn't even know to say thank you. And it was like, it was like this illustration of her whole life was a failure because her grandchild, he doesn't know to say thank you. And then they, I mean, they walked down the park. They're probably still fighting about this right now. That was years ago. And why did mama get so worked up? Read in Romans, descent into the darkness and debauchery, and we'll start this whole cascade down, this, this descent into the darkness and debauchery. And at the very beginning of the descent is they neither glorify God nor gave him thanks. It's they weren't thankful. And then from there, things just started sliding downward. And so thankful heart is so important. You know, one of the, the thankfulness is the soil. All healthy souls grow in the soil of thankfulness. Healthy prayer life grows in the soil of thankfulness. And that's another thing that's hard in our world. Because we live in a world that we, we love things like, um, I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm a self-made person. And I choose, I determine these things. We have an entitled culture. And it makes thankfulness hard to grow. But thankfulness is a soil. And he begins there because in these things, you have to give credit where credit's due. And all credit goes to God for their love and their faith. And this is God's gift to you. But then thankfulness is also a sweetener. It's the soil that healthy souls grow, but it's also a sweetener. Thankfulness is like a little bit of sugar that you can sprinkle on anything. And it makes everything better. And it's what turns the mundane, ordinary things in life sweet. But then the flip side is true. It's ingratitude that can turn the good things into life hard and cold. And this can happen in a multiple different ways. I saw a fascinating interview with Seth MacFarlane a couple years ago. I don't know if you know him. He's the creator of Family Guy and the producer of Ted and, you know, this Hollywood comedian. And did you know that he was scheduled in 2000? Um, one, he was scheduled to be on the American Airlines Flight 11 that left Boston and crashed into the second tower um, of the Twin Towers. He was supposed to be on that flight and overslept and missed it. And in this interview, I don't know, it was with Jimmy Fallon or Dave Letterman or one of them, and they asked him, I said, do you ever, like, you just barely escaped death? Do you ever feel like the rest of your life is just this gift? And he started laughing And he made fun of the concept. And he quoted Carl Sagan and said, you know, we're significant junkies where we really want to feel like our life means something. But it's no gift. It was just a random coincidence. And I got so sad for him. Because I thought, here's somebody who's dedicated their entire life to mocking things and making fun of things. He gets paid lots of money to make fun of things and people. And then what has caused is his heart to become so cynical and cold, he cannot even rejoice and be thankful when he has the most obvious 
evidence of mercy in his life. But it's not just people like that. It can happen, you know, there's a kind of a liberal way you can become hard and cold, but there's a conservative way where you become um, moralistic and kind of legalistic and your heart just becomes judgmental and demanding and it's thankfulness that will fall all of those things. It's thankfulness that you can sprinkle on the little mundane, ordinary things of life that can make them come alive. So here's a challenge for you. Try tomorrow morning to spend the first five minutes thinking, how can I make this normal, ordinary morning? <laughs> down to the coffee machine, and, this might, and then the challenge is to be thankful. It's the reason why they're not in the Ronald McDonald house as infertility. I am here in my home, and I am not in the Ronald McDonald house as my child is in the ER. So we are here. I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to be thankful that I can walk up to a machine and press a button and the life-giving <laughs> juice of coffee could just uh, magically appear. I mean, that's thankfulness. How many people in the world would love that kind of thing? And just what thankfulness can do is it can, it can season even the most ordinary moments of life and bring you joy. But then thankfulness also creates desires. What I love here is Paul is praying, but he's praying for more. He's saying, God has given you these things, love and, and faith, but now we need more. I want you to experience more. I want your eyes to be open so you experience more. Because the way you express real thankfulness for things like that is you don't say, oh, I'm good, I don't need any more. You ask for more. The way you express thankfulness for grace is by begging for more grace. Another story from Miss Joanne is uh, my senior year in college. After I graduated, I stayed on at the church and was working as a youth minister, and we had some kind of turnover. Within uh, two weeks, our pastor, associate pastor, music director, and secretary all left. And so I was a $50 a week youth minister, and we show up at that Wednesday night family dinner, and they find out, like, they start looking around, like, who's going to preach? I'm like, well, I don't know. I hope you find somebody. Good luck, guys. But... <laughs> And uh, the word went around in the church that that summer, because I was living still at college and in the dorms, and it's kind of a complicated story, but couldn't get into our uh, thing. So it, the word got around that I was eating, like, Fritos and bologna for dinner. And, like, in a southern town, that's offensive. Like, the women that church took that morally and personally. They were offended that I was eating bologna for dinner. And so Miss Joanne came up to me one Sunday and said, you, you call me this week. And I want you to come over. And I said, oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And then I, I didn't call. And then the next Sunday when I show up to church, she's there waiting. She's at the door and she is angry. She said, you didn't call me this week. I said, well, I didn't want to bother you. And she said, oh, no, no, no. Like, don't steal my joy from me. So what you did this week is you stole my joy. She says, it's my joy to fix food for you. Don't steal that from me. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes, yes, ma'am. And the thing is, if you want to honor someone like Miss Joanne, like the way you honor her is you ask. You come to her home hungry, and it's her joy to fill you up. If you ever have the opportunity to go eat at her home, do not stop at McDonald's on the way. There's nothing at McDonald's that will be better than what you get there. The way you honor her is you come hungry and you ask for seconds. And you know how you honor the living Lord who lavishes his grace on you? You come hungry and you ask for seconds. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? 
I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the Lord. Fill it. Fill it. I lift up an empty cup and ask you to fill it. You know, one sense, the greatest thing you can do for me as the leader of this church and the pastor is come hungry and say, we need you to fill us. We're empty and we give us the word. Fill us. Come to the worship. Come to your small groups. Ask, I need to be filled. Thankfulness generates desire where it wants more. But the last thing is thankfulness dreams. What I love is what Paul does is he looks at them and the whole, neck, the whole book is about how to stimulate more faith in Christ and love for one another. Chapters 1 through 3 is all about how to have more faith in Christ, what we need to know, believe, trust. And then chapters 4 through 6 is all how to love one another better. So Paul says you have these things, but you need more. And what he's doing is he's, he's not just looking at them as they are. He's looking at them and praying as they could be, as they should be, as they will be, as they're transformed by grace. So he's dreaming about who they could be. So another thankfulness experiment you know, you all know how one person, like in your work, in your neighborhood, in your, kind of at your job, in your circles, one really negative person can just like destroy the entire atmosphere of the room. But what if the opposite is true? What if like one unshakably, unstoppably thankful person can have the reverse effect where it breathes life in the entire room? What would a church be like if you were filled with the type of people who were sent out in the world where they were those people? Where they had this indomitable thankfulness and they spread with them wherever they went the aroma of gratitude and joy. It might transform your home. It might transform your neighborhood, your street, your community, your work. And so what we're asking is, Lord, to help us to be these kind of people. See, those three things, faith in, love for, and thankfulness to, on the surface they seem so simple. But underneath the hood, there's such profound depths. And if they get into your heart and soul, they can change you. So what we want to do is just take a moment now and pause and pray and ask the Lord, work that into our life. Make these things real into our life. So I'm just going to pray and kind of lead us and prompt us to ask the Lord to make these things true.